All right, hey, let's open to 1 Peter today. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll continue in our study through the book of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1, how to resist during times of trial and struggle and crisis in our faith. How do we resist and stay strong for the Lord? That's the big idea of this entire book. As you're making your way there, just by way of introduction to our text today, um, I'll tell you my, about my great-grandfather. In, in 1899, my great-grandfather accompanied his father, my great-great-grandfather, who was a mining engineer to Alaska. The occasion and purpose for their trip to go to Alaska in 1899 was that my great-great-grandfather had worked with a group of people because he was a mining engineer, and they uh, had put together this, this group, this company, and they had bought a parcel of land in Alaska, and they were hopeful that they could do some, some mining and some prospecting, uh, and, uh, and so they went there to, to scout out the land. Well, when they got there, it turned out they bought a lake. They had been swindled. Um, and, uh, and so, um, you know, the, the, the trip was a bust for my great, great grandfather, but it would forever alter the course of my great grandfather's life. Uh, his father, you know, he stayed in Alaska trying to salvage, uh, you know, the loss of the, the, the land and the investment, which he didn't. Um, but he sent my great-grandfather home. He, he bought him a, a ticket to get on the last boat uh, out of town um, to go home. He wanted him to go back to school. My great-grandfather at the time, 10 years old. I, different, different time, 1899, you take your 10-year-old, you buy a ticket, and you say, get on the boat and go home, you know, from Alaska. Uh, but that's what they did. And uh, it's a long story, but su- suffice it to say that my great-grandfather missed the boat. Um, and he would ultimately spend the rest of his life there in Alaska making his fortune. His family didn't know that he was missing for over a year. His mom thought he was with his dad. His dad thought he'd got home back to to school, and by that time, you know, he'd already been well on his way. And he engaged, he embarked in, in a number of different things along the way. He was a, he was a prospector, a gold prospector. He was actually kind of pretty successful uh, in that. Um, he was involved in the logging uh, industry, and he ultimately ended up acquiring independent lumber company in Fairbanks, Alaska, and he became the chairman of the board. Uh, a really just incredible story. Um, and in 1964, my great-grandfather died, and he left an inheritance to my mom. And additionally, he left a trust fund for my sisters and I for, for our education. And uh, the interesting thing that happened, um, and, uh, you know, the, the trust fund ended up being just a, a huge blessing to us in the sense that it ultimately paid for my education, it paid for my paramedic school, some of my firefighter training, and, and also, um, you know, it, it, and that's a whole other message, and someday I'll give that message just about how we in faithful stewardship can leave a lasting legacy to our children, to our grandchildren, to our great-great-grandchildren, and, and, and on. And, uh, and so a whole other message. But, but the point of the story uh, has to do with, um, with this trust that my great-grandfather set up for me. Um, because although it ended up paying for my education, that almost didn't happen. See, here's what, what happened. Um, the executor of the trust 
that, that had been placed in place in the trust. He, he invested the money uh, with a banking institution uh, in certain funds. And over time, the bank began draining that trust fund of its principal assets uh, through charging heavy fees and management costs. I won't say the name of the financial institution, but it rhymes with Bank of America. And so... <laughs> And so they began siphoning off the main principal part of the account. And we watched every month our principal balance go lower and lower and lower. And so um, my parents trying to get the, the trust fund broken so that they would stop spending our money and distribute it to us. And, uh, and they actually had to lawyer up and they had to go and fight uh, in court. It was a long process and, and they ultimately were able to wrestle the, the monies out of the accounts uh, at Bank of America and, and disperse them to my sisters and I. Um, but uh, again, it took years. Here's the point. And here's why I use this as, an, as a setup for our text today. The point is that my inheritance was being corrupted and it was fading away. And the big idea of this section of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we're going to cover today is that as Christians, we too have an inheritance. And Peter's going to tell us and show that it's an inheritance that is incorruptible. It's, a, it's an inheritance that is undefiled. Uh, and it's an inheritance that will never fade away. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the source of our inheritance. We're going to look at the security of our inheritance. And we're going to look at our share of the inheritance. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we'll stop there, dig into that. Peter's first point, the source of our inheritance. Peter writes that it is sourced, it, it comes from the abundant mercy of God the Father, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, he says, begotten us again to a living hope. Now that phrase, begotten us again, what does it mean? Well, it's simply another way of saying that we've been born again. That's what he's talking about in terms of that inheritance. He's talking about born again. In, G, in uh, John chapter 3, um, we read there that the, uh, there's a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus. He came at night. His name was Nicodemus. And uh, he came at night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was coming to see Jesus. But he came to him and basically here's what he said to Jesus. He says, I, I know you're a teacher. Come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And uh, here's how Jesus responded, John 3, 3. He said, uh, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus went on to tell Nicodemus, in effect, look, I'm not a teacher that's come from God. I am God. Uh, and, and he said, and the reason that, that you can't get your head around this, I'm paraphrasing, but hey, look, Nicodemus, the reason you're struggling with this, the reason you can't see it, the reason you can't wrap your brain around this thing is because you're spiritually blind. And unless you're born again spiritually, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. And that may be true for some of you here today. Maybe as you're here and you, maybe you've been here for a few weeks or even months and you've heard the word taught and it just doesn't click for you and, and you just can't see it. You can't get it. And I would ask you to consider, are you spiritually blind? 
Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? Have you just invited him to come in and be your Lord and Savior? Because really, short of that, you're going to be spiritually blind. And and it's not going to click for you. It's not going to make sense for you. And so, unless you're born again spiritually, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. And that's the idea that Peter's conveying here when he says that God the Father has begotten us again. That when a person is saved, they're born again, and they're a new creation in Christ. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said this. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things become new. And Peter goes on to say exactly what makes this possible in verse 3. As we read, he basically says, look, the Father has begotten us to a living hope. You know, the source of our inheritance is the Father. And it's through, he says, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2. He said, and you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcisions of your, uh, uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. When I go through uh, Colossians and I'm teaching it, the way I like to describe or set up this verse is I talk about a group picture. You ever take a group photo, right? Who's the first person you look for in a group photo? Yourself, right? We all do it. I mean, it's funny. Brenda and I will take a group photo and I'll look at it. That's a great picture. Brenda's like, no, it's not. And I look and oh, she doesn't like the way her hair is in that picture, whatever it is. She looks at, oh, I love this picture. I'm like, I look horrible in that picture, you know? And so we, we just naturally look at ourselves. And so in going through this, I love, because what, what Paul does here to the Colossians, he takes a group photo and he says, hey, let's find you in the photo. Oh, there you are. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart. You're a loser. That's what you are right there. But he says, he has made you sinner, dead in your, in your trespasses and sin, He's made you alive together with him. That is Jesus, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And how did he do this? Jesus died in our place. He died for our sins. He died the death that you and I should have have paid. And and he was buried in the grave that you and I should have been buried in. Three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death. And you and I, by faith in him, we conquer sin and death. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid that debt. And so this is, you know, Peter saying, man, look, you have received an incredible inheritance. Your inheritance is salvation. It was purchased by Christ on the cross. He raised from the dead. And and now, man, God the Father doing this loving, incredible work on our behalf. And he's begotten us. He's born us again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see, and this is important, I want you to see just as my inheritance was the result of my great-grandfather's work. I did nothing to earn that inheritance. It was the result of his work on my behalf. So too, our salvation is entirely God's work. You see, Peter says that it comes by the abundant mercy of the Father. He says that it's through Jesus Christ, 
And he says that our inheritance is reserved in heaven. And he's going to go on to say, and we'll read it in a minute, that we are kept, literally guarded by the power of God. And so not only does God just make that way for us to be saved when we are powerless to save ourselves. He does it on our behalf. But not only that, but he helps us in our weakness to honor him, to obey him, to follow him. The Bible says when we are weak, he is strong. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that. Now, what, what we see is that it's God working through and through right? Maybe you'll remember this in Luke chapter seven. You you got an account there where Jesus, he's with his disciples and they're entering into the town of Nain. And as they go into Nain, they're greeted by a funeral procession coming out of the town. And so there they are, they're walking in, the funeral procession walking out. And Jesus comes face to face with with this spectacle of, well, they got this young man and he's in the, the, the coffin. The guy's dead in his coffin. And they're carrying him out to bury him. And there are the group that's mourning and, and, and weeping is this, this young man's poor mom. And the text is careful to tell us that she's a widow. So here she is. She's all alone. She's, she's already lost her husband. Now she's lost her son. So the text says that Jesus had compassion on her. And he walked up to the coffin, touched the man in the coffin. And he said to him, young man, I say to you, arise raised him from the dead. Here's my question for you. What could that guy do in his coffin to raise himself from the dead? Nothing. It's the work of the Lord, right? With that in mind, I want you to back up one verse and I want you to take note that Peter is addressing this letter to who? Beginning in verse two, the elect. He is addressing this letter to the elect. Now that word elect, here's what it means literally. It literally means picked out or chosen, okay? Picked out or chosen. And let me tell you what this means. This simply means that they are chosen by God in a particular and in a unique sense. What particular and unique sense, you ask? Well, he goes on and he finishes, you are to the elect, right? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So the idea there, when he says, look, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God, in other words, God's choosing is not random. It's not uninformed. When God elects those to salvation, it's not like, you know, he's out playing duck, duck, damn, you know? You're in, you're in, you're out. You're in just indiscriminately right? And there are some that believe that this is what God does, that he creates some for heaven, that he creates some specifically for hell, and this is their idea of election, right? And, and the, the, the issue here, and what we need to understand, is that election is based on God's omniscience, which is a, a real fancy word, which just simply means that God knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing you can't teach him, or that you can teach him. There's nothing that he can learn, He knows it all. He knows the end from the beginning. And this foreknowledge includes God's prior knowledge about our response to the gospel. Now, there are those that in regards to our response to the gospel, not only do they think that, hey, God makes some people destined for heaven and he makes some people destined for hell, but they think that, you know, because we are all sinners and we're separated from God, that there's absolutely nothing that we can do to make a choice to choose God. 
right? And this is the rub. This is those that, that hold to Reformed theology would say, listen, you, you know, there, you're up, God chooses you and you're powerless to choose yourself because you're a sinner. And so in effect, what they're saying is that God does say, I choose you, I don't choose you. I choose you, I don't choose you. And that he just does that indiscriminately, right? And that is not the truth. And, and here's what I would say. While God does indeed know who will respond to the gospel and who won't, his heart is for all to repent, right? And so here's the thing. Um, there's two things I would say to this idea of God chooses some to go to heaven and God chooses some to go to hell and that we in our sin absolutely are powerless to, to make a choice for God because we're sinners and we're depraved and there's nothing in us able to do that. Well, my argument to that is, is uh, John 16, 8. Uh, and, and I don't think we have it on the screen for you, but I just have you write it down and I'll read it for you. John 16, 8, Jesus speaking, he says of the Holy Spirit, and when he has come, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so here's my point for those who would say, listen, you're depraved as a sinner. You can't make a choice. I say, well, you're right, but you're wrong because God can help you to make a choice, right? Yeah, in yourself, but you discount the work of the Holy Spirit. See, what, what I, as I read John 16, 8, what I see is that God gives to us his Holy Spirit and he's able to convict, and it says, the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Here's what that tells me, that God can cause you to come to a place outside of a relationship with him when you're confronted with the, with the truth. And in that sinful place, because of the, the power of the Holy Spirit, God can say, look, this is sin, this is righteousness, this is my judgment, choose. And he says in the Old Testament, listen, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses, choose life, right? And so God, he's created us. The Bible says that he's created us in his image. Part of being created in the image of God is that he gives to us a sovereign will just as he himself has a sovereign will. And the reason for this is that if God made you love him, if you didn't have a choice in the matter, well, then that's not love. You never had a choice in it. You know, what if, you know, you're sitting next to your spouse, what if they never had a choice to love you? What if they were forced to be in the relationship? Well, it wouldn't be an intimate, what makes your marriage amazing is that they actually choose, you know who you are. I mean, you shave your face every day and you're like, she chooses to love me. She's either got brain damage or she really is awesome, you know? And it makes it that much special when there is that, that volition, that, that willful choice of, I, I will give my life to you. I love you. And God creates us with the ability to choose. It makes the relationship meaningful. The other thing I would say is as far as God just capriciously playing duck, duck, damn with creation, just carry that through. What does that mean if that's true? And it's not true in my, in, in my, my wholehearted belief. What that means is, I mean, think of your child. If, if that's true, then God created that child specifically to go to hell. The Bible says that, that hell is a horrible place. There is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. And so if God created your child with the express specific purpose to go spend eternity in torment, well, it's not consistent with the heart of a loving God, is it? And if you look here in 1 Peter in, in verse 3, we get a glimpse of the heart of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, what is it? 
abundant mercy. Our Father is abundantly merciful. Hey, moreover than that, 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us this. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What does all mean? All, all means all. That's all all means, right? And so God's desire is that all should be saved. Now he knows not all are going to be saved, but we are created. Now, so, you know, you might say, well, okay, now he doesn't create some specifically for hell, but since he knows the end from the beginning, you could argue that when he creates them, he already knows they're going to hell. So isn't that the same thing? No, it's not because the heart of God is that all should be saved. So even though he knows the decision that you're going to make, he wants to give you the chance. He wants to give you the opportunity to make that decision on your own. He'll bring you to a place where you're able to choose life or death. So it's your choice. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.15 that Jesus died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is another argument. People say, you know what? Jesus didn't die for the sins of all. He only died for the sins of those who are elect. He only died for those who he is going to save and take to heaven. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that Jesus died for all, right? Nevertheless, here, the fact is that God loved us so much. And this is what I want you to get from all this. God loved you so much that even though he knew that some would reject him ultimately, he still sent his son to die for the sins of everyone. Amazing love. Insane, incredible. I know you're going to reject me, but I'm going to die for you. I know you're going to betray me, but I'm going to die for you. And here's the tragedy. The tragedy is we hear this so much that we're just numb to it. I mean, it's like years ago, we were on a family vacation and, uh, and we took a wrong turn. And uh, before we realized it, we realized we were a half hour away from, from the North Rim of the, of the Grand Canyon. It's like one of the most spectacular views there is of the Grand Canyon. We, we weren't going to the Grand Canyon, but it, now we're a half hour away. Well, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. So I'm like, okay, kids, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. Well, they're mad. They're, cause they're like, you know, they're in the RV and, you know, they're playing their video games and they're, you know, we we're, we're going to go to the lake and have fun and, you know, and do all the, the, the boat and all that stuff. And they're, they're, they could care less about the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. And we actually get out there. My son, Scott, I'll throw you under the bus, Scott. He goes out there. He stands at the North Rim. You ever been to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon? It's like majestic. It's like breathtaking. And he stands there and he's got, you know, his video. And he's like, eh. Are you, eh? That's all you can say to that? We get that way with this incredible truth. God the Father loves you and sent his son to die for you. And he sent his son to die for everyone, those that would reject him and those that would receive him. He died for all. And the, the, the you know, Romans 5.8, I, I quote it often. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Didn't do nothing to deserve it. He died. He laid down his life Oh, here's the point of application for us. 
We can't ever forget the source of our inheritance. We can't ever forget it. Here's the deal. This is why Peter in verse three, and this is, a, this is a, just a cool word search. In, in verse three, he said, blessed be God, be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that word blessed mean? If you're note taking, you might want to circle it. In the Greek, the word is eulogize, right? The word is eulogize. Here's, here's what eulogize means. It means to extol, to acclaim, to praise, and to rave about. Now, we, you know, we think of a eulogy as, you know, there's a funeral and somebody, I, uh, they died and I got to get up and I got to say some nice things. Years ago, um, I was officiating a funeral for uh, one of my wife's uh, family friends. And when I don't know the person who died, which is almost all the time when you do a funeral, but when I don't know the person who died, I don't want to come across like I knew the person. So I, I try and meet with the family and I try because, you know, they're basically, you know, saying, we just want you to speak for us. And I'm like, okay, I didn't really know your mom. Can you tell me about her? And I'm taking notes and I really want to, I want to convey their hearts. And so I'm trying to recycle their memories, you know, for the, the benefit of the people. They're broken up. They can't stand. They don't want to just stand there and cry in front of everybody. Can you please just represent us? Yeah, I love to do that. So I'm there and I'm really doing my level best to meet with a family and say, tell me, you know, about your mom and, and, and all. I could tell a minute into that eulogy that they lied to me <laughs> because when I was talking and I'm saying, well, she's this and she's that. And people are like looking at each other like, that is, that is not the mom. <laughs> That's not my mom, you know, kind of thing. And, and so there I am just looking like a fool because I'm eulogizing. It's, it's a flat out, you know, lie, you know. I wasn't intentional. I was just telling them what I had heard, but apparently I didn't hear the truth. She wasn't anything like that. This word eulogize is to extol, to acclaim, to praise, to rave about. It's talking about, let me tell you in, in incredible, amazing, truthful terms what this person is. And, and, and here's the idea. When we focus on the source of our inheritance, the result is we will worship God. That's the result. When you stop and you take the time to go, hey, wait, wait, what is my inheritance? Wow, that's my, and God gave that to me. He is so good, I'm gonna worship him. He is worthy of all of my praise. He's worthy of all of my life. Now hold that thought. Something else I'll tell you about election. and We'll tie it in together here in a second. But since you asked, let me tell you something else about election, Okay. I want you to notice in verse two that Peter writes to the elect and and here's what he says. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in, listen here, sanctification of the spirit for obedience. Do you see that? He's writing to the elect in sanctification of the spirit for obedience. See, an essential result of election is that there will be sanctification and obedience. Now, some would like to think that election only pertains with going to heaven or going to hell. And what, you know, you, you encounter certain people and they're real big on election and God did, we didn't choose God, God chose up uh, and, and, and all. But what, what I've noticed, and it's not universal, but it's, it's pretty common that when there are people that are adamantly holding to that view, I've noticed that there's a certain amount of pride and arrogance 
And, and what I've noticed, because what Peter is saying here when he talks about your elect, but then he's saying this is what the result of election is. That's really what he's saying. And Peter is reminding us that election isn't just about heaven or hell, but that it touches earth also. That's important. Here's why. Because you can say you're elect all day long, but if there's no evidence of sanctification and obedience in your life, well, then you better check your spiritual pulse. And, and the amazing thing to me is I've never met somebody who claims to be elect that says, I'm elect to go to hell. Never met them. They all say, oh, I'm elect to go to heaven. Really? Well, here's the deal. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the book of James, uh, and he says that faith without works is dead. He says, you show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, you can't show, you, you, if you truly have faith, there's going to be something to back it up. You're going to live it out. And so we can't ever forget our inheritance, that man, the source of our inheritance comes from God, that God the Father in the person and work of Jesus Christ is the source of, of our inheritance. And as we remember and as we focus on him, then the result is worship. And we will worship as a demonstration in how we live out our faith. It's going to show up in sanctification. It's going to show up in obedience if I've truly been saved in this way. And I'll just say this. In terms of worship, when you think of worship as a congregation, when we gather together corporately like this and we worship the Lord in our singing and we worship the Lord in, you know, our singing on the front end and the back end, it's not just that. We worship the Lord with our whole lives. It's how you live your life that you worship the Lord. And so when we gather together corporately, you worship the Lord in how you sing. You worship the Lord in how you're a student of his word to, to listen and to take notes. You worship the Lord in how you give. You worship the Lord with your checkbook. You worship the Lord with how you walk out these doors and did I just hear a good teaching or am, am I actually going to allow the Lord to write that message on the tablet of my heart and live it out? This is how we worship the Lord. And so... Having established the source, Peter now moves, and now he's going to turn to the security of our inheritance. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I want you to look at all of those power statements that are there, powerful statements in verse four. Our inheritance, first of all, is we have one. Inheritance, it's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. It's preserved in heaven. Talk about secure, right? Hey, can you hold this, this inheritance for me? I really want to make sure it's safe. Yeah, I'll lock it up for you. You sure it's safe? It's in heaven. Oh, that's pretty safe, right? It's secure. And, and here he says, kept by the power of God, which means that God himself is helping you in your weakness, as we've talked about. 
And so these powerful statements that we have, the security of our inheritance, he goes on. And he says, verse six, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter says that the genuineness of our faith is much more precious than gold which perishes. And I can't help but read this, and I think about Judas Iscariot. <coughs> because I'm looking here, Peter, talking about... Here, let me get some water here. I got to cut, cut down to two packs a day. All right. So... <laughs> um, so what the, the deal here is that we, we I, I think about Judas Iscariot because Peter's talking about, listen, you're much more precious than gold that perishes. And, and Peter ought to know because he saw firsthand, he saw, here was a guy in Judas Iscariot, the Bible says he used to steal money from the, from the tithe bag and, and all. And he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed the Lord, Right. And what happened? Here's a guy who was moved by money. Money was everything. Dictated what he did. Sold his Lord and Savior out for money. And what did he do with that money? Well, at the end, he threw it back to the priest that gave it to him. He said, keep your money. And he went out and he hung himself. He realized my money means nothing. As he hung himself, you know, he, he, it says he, he fell endlong as the entrails fell out. In other words, all his guts spilled out in the field there. And, and they called it Akeldama, the field where he did this, the field of blood. And then the, the priest said, we can't take this, this money that he threw back at us. It's blood money. Um, talking about hypocrisy. So then they take that money and they buy the field and they, they make this field Akeldama, this place where strangers could be buried uh, whenever they came in. It just defiled, just a defiled area. And so when, and when Peter says, look, look, you know, here's the deal. The genuineness of your faith, it's much more precious than gold which perishes. He ought to know. He saw this. When I was 17 years old, I was um, going through a, a school program at my school to, be, to get my emergency medical technician certificate. There was a, a trade school they offered as part of the high school, and so I could do that. And... Um, and I was in my junior year of high school, and I'm taking this, this class. Well, to get your emergency medical technician certificate, part of the program is you have to do ride-alongs with uh, the paramedics and the ambulance company, you know? So I, I'm out there, and I'm in an ambulance. I'm 17 years old. I grew up in Redondo Beach, which is just, you know, just middle class, upper middle class area. I was naive about the things of the world. I thought, man, homelessness, man, if it gets that bad, I'll just join the army, three hots in a cot. I didn't have a clue about the cycle of mental illness, about domestic violence, about drug abuse. I didn't know any of that stuff. And so I get on this ambulance and it's just, you know, like a deer in the headlights just seeing life as it is. One of the calls that I ran there, you know, in the, the, the South Bay, Palos Verdes is this beautiful peninsula that, that juts out uh, in the South Bay and it, and it sits up on the coast. And, and if you get, you know, it, there are million dollar homes up there. And, and, and up on this one section of Palos Verdes, you have a 365-degree view. 
and, or 360 degree view. And so, you know, 365, I guess you went past it and you keep going a little more. Um, you know, so you've got a 360 degree view. So the issue is you could see Catalina off on this side and you turn around and you could see, you know, the whole Santa Monica Bay. So you, you see Malibu and you see Los Angeles and you could see downtown and you could see, you know, Santa Monica and Redondo and just the whole panoramic skyline. And so I respond to this call. I go up there and here's a guy, we come pulling up. The guy's got two Bentleys in his driveway. Easy, $10 million house. You go into this room and it's just, it's a circular room and it's windows. Just, wow. The man's wife is dying of cancer. She's his life. This is a guy who clearly is a captain of industry. He is large and in charge. He is a man who is in control. And I'm a 17-year-old kid who doesn't know nothing. And I walk in there, and here's what I knew when I walked in there and I looked at this. I said, wow, here's a powerful man. And for all of his money, he's helpless. And he's scared to death. Because here his wife is dying, and he's powerless to do a thing about it. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And I realized at that point, man... He trusted in the wrong stuff. He trusted in the wrong stuff. And I wonder, what are you trusting in today? What do you trust? See, because what Peter's saying here is that we have an inheritance that's never going to fade away. And it's more precious than gold. And, you know, just like my experience with, the, with my bank, and, they, you know, they're trying to defile and corrupt my inheritance and do, do their best to make it fade away. You know what? I thank God my hope really ultimately isn't in that. See, anytime we place our, our, our hope in our money or in our stuff or, or anything other than Jesus Christ, ultimately you're going to find that it will be defiled and corrupted. And you'll be left like this man where you, your whole world is going away and there's nothing you can do about it. I want to ask you where your security comes from today. I want to ask you if you have completely yielded and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ today. I want to ask you if your, if your inheritance is in heaven. What is the source of your inheritance? Is it an earthly, worldly inheritance? Is it a heavenly inheritance? You know, we talked about this last week, but... Um, Jesus, in, in the Gospel of Mark, he asks a question. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? And, you know, he said that in a place called Caesarea Philippi, a place filled with idols. And that was the backdrop that he, that he asks this rhetorical question on. You know, it's been said that the human heart is an idol factory. And the issue is we're all worshipers. The question is, what do you worship? And again, last week I told you, there's a great little diagnostic tool that we, that we all have. It's a checkbook register. And if you'll take your checkbook register out, and if you'll study that, because here's the thing, with, when it comes to idols, we sacrifice to them, we give to them, we make every adjustment for them. 
And so you take that little diagnostic tool out and you take a look at it and it will tell you what you worship. Whether you worship the true and living God or if you worship something else. And I gave that to you as a homework assignment last week and I'm, and I'm going to give it to you again as a homework assignment this week because here's what I know. When I got a really tough homework assignment at school, a lot of times I wouldn't do it. So I ask you, man, where is your security? What are you worshiping? What's the source of your inheritance? Jesus said, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Peter writes that we have an inheritance. It's incorruptible, it's, it's, it's undefiled, and it'll never fade away. He says, God the Father, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, is the source of our inheritance as Christians. And he says that God himself guarantees the security of our inheritance. And finally, what I want to look at is that Peter elaborates on what is our share of the inheritance. What is our share of the inheritance? Verse six, we'll pick it up there. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom Having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. Circle that. We'll come back to that. And full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now listen, what Peter says here is important. We're, we're wrapping this thing up. There's two minutes here left with you. And I want you to tune in here because I know that many of you are going through trials right now, big ones. And, and what we need to understand is that Peter's hitting the bullseye there on the trial button. And what he's saying is, listen, because you're going through trials, because this is a, a life that is not all puppy dogs and butterflies, what he's saying is, look, you need to understand that when God allows you to go through a trial, it's because you're being tested like gold in a furnace. And if we take gold that is precious and we put it through a fiery trial, how much more precious are you to the Lord? He's going to allow you to go through fiery trials. And Peter acknowledges here, look, I know that they're painful trials. I get it. I understand. No trial is pleasant. They're all painful. But he says, listen, as you, as you trust in the Lord, this is, this is the, the big idea He's basically, what he points out is that there's four things that's going to happen in your life. Four things that are going to happen in our life as, as, as we trust in the Lord through our trials. The first thing is, he'll refine your faith. David Guzik said this. I'll put his quote up on the screen for you. He said, our faith isn't tested because God is ignorant of the quantity or quality of our faith. It's tested because we are the ones who are ignorant. It's not like God says, oh, I wonder if Ted can handle this thing. Uh, you know, let me put him through this. No, God knows what I'll be. He puts me through it and I go, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe that I couldn't handle that thing. I can't believe my faith failed in that area. Or I can't believe my faith preserved through this area, right? And so God allows us to be tested because he wants to refine our faith. 
James said this. He said, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Here's the second reason why, or second thing that God will do as we trust him through our trials. First of all, he's going to refine our faith. Secondly, he's going to reveal himself in our trials. If you think about John chapter four, there's the wedding feast at Cana and they, the trial there is they ran out of wine. Big wedding, we ran out of wine. And so Jesus's mom comes to Jesus. She's like, hey, can you, can you help your mama out? This is really important. And can you do this? And wanting to show her son off, no doubt. And, and her son calls the servants together. He has them fill the, water, or the wine pots all up with water. And he turns the water into wine. Who saw the miracle? Servants of God. Nobody else saw the miracle. Nobody else knew it as a miracle. It was the servants of God who saw that it was a miracle. And, and so what, what that means is that a lot of times, God, don't, don't you love me? Don't you care? I'm, I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm really trying to live righteously. And you're allowing me to go through this trial. And God's like, yeah, you're my servant. What I want you to do, I want to reveal myself to you. And I want you to see me in the midst of your trial. Nothing like a trial to help you to see Jesus. Amen? Third thing that if we will trust the Lord in our trials, third thing, you'll receive the salvation of your soul. James 1.12 says this, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Fourth thing, and we're going to close on this point. This is important. Listen, if you'll trust the Lord through your trial, what are you going through today? What is it? Write it down. Just take, you know, I don't, you're like, I don't have to write it down. It's my constant companion. I know what my trial is. All right. If you will trust the Lord through that trial, here's what God will do. In addition to these other three things, he will bring you to the place where you rejoice and you experience joy inexpressible. That's what he says in verse eight. Joy Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. This is the only place that this is used in the New Testament. The one and only place. And here's what it means. It means it describes a joy that is so profound that it is beyond the power of words to express. And, and here's the deal. When you're going through a trial, maybe you're there right now. When you're going through that trial, Right now is the darkest, hardest, worst part. But if you will trust the Lord through it, and if you will watch expectantly for what the Lord wants to do and what he is doing, when he brings you through that trial, man, I'm telling you, the joy that you will have. Why? Because he proves himself again and again and again. And when you say, listen, he'll never leave you or forsake you, Well, that goes from being some scripture or some promise to something that you have tasted and seen. You say, I'll tell you what, listen, I know it seems like he's a million miles away. He'll never leave you. He will never forsake you. When you say, hey, listen, the Bible promises that God will provide, you'll say, you know what? I've lived it. I didn't know what was gonna happen and God provided. It results in joy, just inexpressible inexpressible joy when you taste and see that the Lord is good when you find that he's everything he says he is and more because you've trusted him you trust him today